Welcome, everybody, to Caregivers Speak. I'm Marjorie Papp Steinmetz, and my website is mycaregivingcoach.com. We are supported by eCareDiary.com. We appreciate that support. I would invite all of you, as always, to go to both websites where there is a multitude of caregiver resources for the busy caregiver. Today, I am so excited to introduce my guest, who will be with us for at least a couple of radio shows and probably more. Dr. Rosemary Laird is the medical director at Florida Hospital Center for Senior Health in Winter Park, Florida. Her passion is caring for older adults and their caregivers. She was educated at Georgetown University and the University of Chicago. When Dr. Laird and I first got acquainted and when we were talking about doing some radio shows together, I asked her, what are a couple of the biggest questions she hears most often from caregivers? One was how to know when your loved one uh, no longer can be independent. And the second one was about how do you know the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. Today, we are going to address that first issue, knowing when independence, when you can stay independent, your loved one can stay independent, and when they can't. So welcome, Dr. Laird. Thanks, Marjorie. So happy to be here with you. I'm delighted to have you here. I'd like to begin with your telling our listeners why you have a passion for working with caregivers. Well, Marjorie, I've been caring for patients with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia for probably about 25 years now. And something I learned very early on is that as I would come into my exam room, I was always very aware that I had the patient that was on my chart, the Mm -hmm. individual with the Alzheimer's disease or another sort of dementia, but I was always keenly aware that in that room was really another patient in quotes, yes, <laughs> and, and that was the <laughs> caregiver, the often family member or sometimes a friend of this patient who was along on the, the journey uh, of dealing with and facing these uh, challenging illnesses. And so I um, got to see very clearly what kinds of stresses and challenges and obstacles really that were in the way for the family caregivers. And so I became quite interested. Uh, The path forward to help my patient was often pretty clear. The path forward to help the caregivers, especially back when I started, you know, 20, 25 years ago, there was very little information. And even even less known was the fact that these caregivers can be under a lot of uh, chronic stress and that that chronic stress could be a real negative to their health and well-being. And so... About 10 years ago now, I was involved in a book project where the title of the book was Our Main Call to Action for Caregivers, and it was Take Your Oxygen First. And we really wanted to promote the idea that caregivers need to pay attention to their own health and well-being if they really want to feel and be able to uh, provide the care for their loved ones. So I consider this a little take your oxygen first when they tune in to your show and look at the resources you have uh, for uh, supporting them and their loved ones. That's a great example of something they can do for themselves. Great. Thank you so much. And one of those big stressors seems to be that ambiguity around, should I 
does my mom really need to move out of her house or out of her apartment? Um, you know, does she need some sort of assistance? And, you know, those kinds of uncertainties are the things that really drive caregivers crazy. So as we begin to talk about this issue of independence, what overarching objectives should we as caregivers be mindful of when considering our loved one's independence? So I like the way you ask the question because one of the first things I'll tell caregivers is if you're faced with this sort of question for your loved one, put the first question centered right around your loved one. And, and we all need to come to understand how much does our loved one value their independence and what part of their independence do they value? Because you really have to start there if you're going to help someone make some decisions about what to do with their living arrangements, for example, or their day-to-day -day care. Then the second piece, so there's really three key questions. The second question has more to do with what do you understand and know of their medical condition and what that diagnosis implies for the kind of reality as to what they might need and what their future holds. Because knowing the diagnosis, uh, knowledge is power, right. knowing the diagnosis gives you much greater ability to then be able to help your loved one uh, through those kinds of decisions. So the third piece is really the corollary of that. What specific types of care support might this individual need and where does one get that? Right, exactly. Um, certain of us will need uh, care that can more easily be provided by someone coming into our home. Others of us have a disease that may lend itself better to care in a larger group setting or someone else's home, for example. So those key questions. Great. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, it reminds me of my mom and dad when they were alive. My mother was very gregarious and would have liked a group setting uh, sooner, even before she really needed to be dependent. My father, on the other hand, was a rugged individual and would want us to. So we tried to honor those two value systems in answering that first question that you, that you gave us. So... Why don't you provide us with a brief scenario, typical of what can happen as caregivers are confronted by this issue of independence? So I think even just uh, before I go into a scenario, building off of your uh, example mm -hmm. from, from your life, uh, understanding our loved one's values is, I said, the first thing to mm -hmm. know. But there are situations where we then have to face the reality that some medical diagnoses yes. don't lend themselves to being perfectly true to what our loved one wanted. But I still tell family members, you got to start there. Now, yes. that doesn't mean that you're going to end there and uh, necessarily uh, continue to follow mm -hmm. that if it puts your loved one at risk. And we'll talk about that a little bit while we go through these yeah. um, scenarios. So let's go ahead and, and use yeah. one of our scenarios yeah. then. Let's say we have a, um, a father. So he's been widowed now a while and he has lived on his own, and uh, you are the uh, adult child of this uh, gentleman who's now aging. Uh, he values his independence. He's quite proud that since his wife passed, he's been able to uh, take on the, the role of, of uh, living alone, and uh, he feels he's doing quite well. Unfortunately, from a medical standpoint, he's actually started to have uh, signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and uh, that starts to show up so much that a neighbor calls you. Oh, great. 
<laughs> right, right. And uh, let me tell you, yeah, in yeah. my experience, if a if a stranger mm-hmm. takes the time to pick mm-hmm. up the phone and make a phone call, uh, you should be paying attention to it. I tell that to people all the time, even my fellow doctors. Yeah. I say, if someone calls your office and says that there's a problem, please pay attention because uh, there clearly is a need, a reason for that worry. Yeah. So, but let's. So, is that scenario work yeah, for absolutely. the conversation? And it sounds so much like my. I'm sure we have caregivers out there in our right, audience right. nodding to themselves. My father didn't have Alzheimer's, but he fell in the driveway, and I heard from a neighbor. It's exactly that kind of scenario, and I knew I better pay attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good, good for you. Yeah. So as we're thinking about this question of um, independence then, it really boils down, in my mind, to um, two, two important things. The personal safety of an individual is probably the, the number one, and the second is does the individual have the wherewithal to help themselves and the judgment to uh, call for help if they need it. Yeah. So that maybe is uh, mm-hmm. uh, goes hand in hand. You do. But the first thing, especially when you're thinking about things from an early stage uh, of your uh, parents' uh, safety, sometimes things you don't even think of, I put in the safety category, and that's things like financial scams mm-hmm. and telephone mm-hmm. solicitors and, yeah. you know, can they keep themselves protected from... Mm-hmm sort of the the evil that lurks yes. out there. Yes. And in some situations, some illnesses like the dementias, they take away that ability mm-hmm. to uh, remember yes. that you already donated and yes. not respond again next month when they call the, with the right. next call. Right. And those are literally things that can happen. So from a personal safety standpoint, that's very important. From a judgment standpoint, you want to start think, paying attention. I think one of the, the key things early on is being a, I call it a silent supporter, where you're observing and not really saying too much, but observing how your loved one is managing normal daily affairs. Yeah. And the places to pay attention, again, would be financial management. So sometimes you can, you know, just take a peek at where the checkbook is Mm -hmm. and whether Mm -hmm. the bills seem to be going out at the right time. Another place is medication management. So I put that in the safety category as well because um, patients who may stop taking the right medicine or forget a refill so that they're not even on the medicine they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. on, those can all um, turn into personal safety issues. I have a question regarding this. So I've had people ask me, they said, you know, to, to err totally on the side of safety sometimes robs a person of their, their reason to be. You know, it's like, oh, we're so concerned about this person walking down the hallway and getting to wherever that that's what occupies the time. And it's, it's draining on that person's identity and what they value and what they want to do. So I know that's a thorny question. No. So what? So how do you manage that? Yeah, I think the I, I, you're absolutely right. And and alongside this question uh, that you're asking, there's a, a deeper quality of life question, because for some people, without their independence, ergo their quality of life is exactly zip, you know gone. Exactly. So I think it's a fair question and quite. Quite frankly, the way I talk with families about this um, is to have them really think clearly on how much uh, risk aversion they, they have. have. 
Again, and back to values. That's right. And <laughs> there are, I have seen everything from total risk aversion so mm-hmm. that a, a child would really go to all lengths to protect their loved one. And in some cases, you know, that can be suffocating from a quality oh, yeah. of life standpoint. And I've seen the other end of the spectrum where people are willing to accept nearly any risk uh, on behalf of their loved one, um, sometimes because of that pledge to never put mom and dad, you know, in a nursing home. Now, from a physician standpoint, I generally will point out what points at which I think we, we can't allow that sort of risk of risk accept, acceptance. Yeah. And typically it turns out to be situations where there can be self-harm. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, not long ago I had a patient take too many pain relievers and ended up in the hospital yeah. uh, because of that. Well, the plan after she left the hospital no longer was that she can keep doing her medicines as she insisted she right. could. Right. And so the family uh, agreed at that point that she needed some support with yeah. her medication. Yeah. So I'm, so I'm a caregiver sitting out there, and I haven't been to my doctor about this. I mean, this is the early stages, right? Mm-hmm. I've noticed some things about mom lately, uh, maybe forgetting something or not taking her meds, like, like you've mentioned. But it's not really big, you know. So what's your suggestion? At what point should you mention this to your doctor? And I know that that first time it's probably, I know, having been there, it's like breaking the ice. It's like, oh, by telling the doctor I'm admitting that we're in a new stage of life here. And that's so hurtful to a child or to a spouse. So what do you say to that? Well, in some ways I'd say start laying the groundwork early that you are a family that will be caring for each other through all phases of life. When I have daughters and sons, I often try to help them and their parents uh, use the memory of what their childhood was like, Where not to put any childlike uh, characterization on the parent, but the mm-hmm. relationship of mm-hmm. support at that phase of life is naturally that the parent will be watching out for and supporting the child. And fast forward to this phase of life right. where an older adult now parent mm-hmm. needs the love, care, support right. of the now adult child who they've developed. And that rule of reversal is the, so that, painful. It, it, can, it, it painful. can be painful. And I think our society isn't as prepared for it no. as it, as it right. should be. But I think that, honestly, if I say that to a family, and the other thing that I can often say that will help people reset their minds is I say to them, if the roles were reversed, and if I've got a husband and wife or a daughter and a mother, Mm -hmm. I say, if the roles were reversed, what would you be doing if your daughter was the one who needed support? Take age out of it. Take the name Mm -hmm. of your role out of it. Mm -hmm. Just think of you and this person. And often if you do that, uh, people, their guard is let down that it's a loving gesture that is a natural uh, action for a family member Mm -hmm. to one another. That is a wonderful tip to just look at it if I were in your shoes. And Exactly. And as you're talking through that, the natural extension is 
hey, let's go to the doctor together. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we know mm-hmm. from the doctor what things we can do to be of help to you. Yes. And if there's anything, sometimes, boy, those doctors talk fast. They don't give you any time. Mm-hmm. Two eyes, two ears, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> two hands to write notes are exactly. better than one. Yeah. Let's work together yeah. on this. Yeah. It can often be a very effective way to get into that role. Yeah. The other thing I would think of and that helped me was when I finally went to the doctor with my with my mom, it, it was really calming to me because finally I had made that decision to go. So now we knew where we stood. You know, she had a complete assessment, and then, but then we knew. And, you know, there were parts of it we didn't like, but at least we knew. And that is an automatic stress reducer. Oh, I've heard that time and time again. That's where I get my knowledge is power kind of thing. Because I have many people tell me they feel much better (laughs) after they know something. Exactly. So what other professionals besides physicians should be consulted So I am a big believer that an uh, elder law attorney or a family estate attorney is very helpful. Uh, Attorneys, you know, we all make some jokes about attorneys, but especially the ones who do family and elder law, they they are extremely well-versed in the law, first of all that can make things easy or very difficult (laughs) when um, any of us uh, either pass away or are are incapacitated and need someone else to care for us. It's very confusing. And so I definitely recommend that families go and get that taken care of because the last thing you need are the, you know, sibling issues or in Mm -hmm. this day and age, the stepmother, father, children, uh, (laughs) any sort of dissension about, whose responsibility and so forth. So that's number one. The second is the financial piece is extremely Mm. difficult. Many at this point in time have not had any real preparation for needing many, many years of care support. We just didn't know, you know, that didn't happen in the past. People didn't live long enough, nor did they live long enough with chronic care needs. Exactly. And children aren't necessarily living in the hometown, so there are many uh, reasons why living a long time can be an expensive endeavor. And so from a financial planning, I think, it, again, it starts early mm-hmm. with making not just retirement. We all talk about planning for our retirement, mm-hmm. but we need to be doing it with an eye towards health care needs. Exactly. And then um, if you uh, haven't done that, you know, talking with a financial uh, planner, again, someone who has expertise in older adults, Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful because there are many individuals out there who want to and do somewhat prey on the older adult population, trying to help them with protecting their money from Medicaid and uh, all sorts of mm-hmm. uh, schemes yeah. like that. Yeah. So uh, it's mm-hmm. real important. Now, typically, if you've got a lawyer who you feel confident with, uh, that individual will often be a good place to get a referral for a financial person, in my experience. Uh, The good ones usually know the good ones. Yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So I'd like to remind our listeners, in fact, we've had an elder care attorney on the program a couple of times, and uh, Dr., or not doctor, she's a lawyer, Um, Heidi Eisenhart has been on the show, I guess, three times. So if you go back in the archives, you'll find Heidi, Heidi Eisenhart, who's with Sheffield Lohman, 
And she is the epitome of what Dr. Laird is describing in terms of compassionate and knows her stuff and can read, can direct people to a variety of places. But once you hear Heidi, you'll want to try to find a Heidi in your community. So, um, and do we have time for just another comment yeah, sure, about other ahead. professionals? Sure. So another, um, and you can sometimes find these people again through the um, uh, lawyer and and financial person. You can sometimes uh, have them help you in this way too. Sometimes the need for one of our loved one, elder loved ones to have outside help come in or to move somewhere where they can get more help, sometimes that news comes easier from someone who isn't family. So every once in a while, the doctor yes. is a powerful and trusted person yes. who can say, it is time to move to assisted living. Yeah. Sometimes the lawyer who's been a family friend and confidant can be the person. So this question about independence, sometimes it, the news coming from a family member isn't as well received as coming from a trusted yes. outside person. So that's just another tip to think through uh, and why it's important to cultivate some of these relationships so that you've got mm -hmm. it to draw on. Yes, because our older adults, let's say 80-plus, are the people, that generation, that trust the professional more than the daughter or son. So right, that's right. a that's great true. tip. That's a great tip. So um, we have just a couple of minutes left. And you have said, and I just want you to uh, clarify this for me, first of all, but also for our listeners, Dr. Laird has said, you know, the outcome for this question of independence can go one of two ways. So tell our listeners what you mean by that. The the chances are, if you've had the conversation with your loved one, you'll have a sense of which way it's going to go. But in general, some of your loved ones are going to be fairly easily persuaded that they need to make the change. Mm -hmm. And that generally, if you can do your homework ahead of time and include them as much as you can, that's generally um, a... a the easy kind of road ahead. Um, the other the other pathway forward is the more unfortunate where there's a lot of resistance. And I, I think uh, finding out the nature of the resistance is usually important. We sometimes resist based on having a belief in our mind of what something looks like with yeah. we don't really know. It's really not so that at all. We don't want yeah. the ALS, but we've actually never seen it, and we think one yeah. way, but the reality is another. So sometimes getting to the core of, Dad, why really don't you want to move? Or sometimes there's a pet or sometimes, yeah. you know, someone. A beloved possession. Right. A chest of drawers. Right. Or a hobby. <laughs> I've had exactly. people, you know. So, And yeah. when you find that sort of kernel of truth, being able to address that sometimes the resistant ways, resistance ways. Sometimes there's a medical reason for it, and there are certain of the diseases, especially Alzheimer's or other dementias, that can create a kind of curmudgeonly and yeah. very agitated uh, demeanor. And sometimes we actually need to help so that the individual feels better on a day-to-day -day basis, use medications to help sort of calm some of those emotions. And in so doing, we actually, you know, find an individual who's a little more agreeable to some yeah. conversations too. So um, all those things can help. Great. 
Well, I can't believe that the 30 minutes has popped by so quickly, but I want to remind our listeners that we do have an archive of this program, and it will be up for you in a day or two on both MyCaregivingCoach.com and eCareDiary.com. So I encourage you to listen back. There have been a lot of amazing tips that Dr. Laird has provided. And if you've got friends and you you think, oh, my gosh, my friends need to hear this, then be sure to share the archive with them. I want to thank Dr. Laird, and I want to remind all of you that we are going to be airing that second thorny question on Tuesday, June 13th at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, when Dr. Rosemary Laird will return to discuss how do you know the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, That's a thorny issue as well. So thank you again, Dr. Laird, and we look forward to your forthcoming show. You're welcome, Marjorie. Thanks to all the listeners, and have a great day. Bye-bye.